Welcome everyone to a new installation of the Greenhouse uh, Environmental Humanities Book Talks. Uh, I'm Fernando Jürgensen. And I'm Dolly Jürgensen. We're your uh, hosts. Uh, and this week we are joined by Jonathan Padway, who's Associate Professor of Anthropology at University of Hawaii, Manoa. Uh, and he will be talking about his new book, um, Disturbed Forest Fragmented Memories. Jerai and Other Lives in the Cambodian Highlands that came out with University of Washington Press in 2020. So we we'll just give the floor to you, Jonathan. Oh, let's see. Rookie move there. Okay, thank you so much. Uh, I appreciate the uh, opportunity to talk with you. And uh, I was telling Finan and uh, Dolly that I just uh, think the series is so uh, vital uh, during this uh, this year and hope that it continues into the future. Um, so I want to talk to you a little bit about uh, the book that I've just uh, just been published um, and uh, it's called Disturbed Forest Fragmented Memories as Finan was just letting us know. Um, this is at its most basic the story of a highland village uh, on the border of Cambodia and Vietnam. Um, from pre-colonial times until the present. Um, that's a, a large task and uh, it's a village I lived in for several years. Um, the, uh, that history is not simply narrated as a, as a history though, but rather through the, um, through the lens of the memory of, the memories of the Jirai people. Jirai is the term for the ethnic minority group uh, up in the hills. Um, how they see their past and its meaning to them in the present. Um, and it's also arranged around a series of historical conjunctures, um, moments, specific moments of the past in which a series of forces come together to create uh, a certain understanding in, in the eyes of those who remember this time that this was a period that was expressive of a sort of a larger set of political and economic realities that converged on this village in the hills. Um, these are histories uh, that include uh, the violence of the colonial moment. I actually uh, have a chapter in it about the pre-colonial moment as it's remembered through various forms of ritual, um, a moment that involved uh, the Jirai acting not as victims on uh, an economic frontier that was overtaking them, which is one of the narratives you see about the Jirai these days as a development kind of rolls into town. Um, but really as actors on a frontier. So they see themselves in the past as, as frontiers people themselves. Um, it includes, uh, the, the book also includes a treatment of the uh, mid-colonial moment, a moment in which um, the uh, state of Cambodia was seeking to create um, integral territory in the face of uh, communist revolutionaries, uh, uh, sort of taking to the hills and threatening the, the security of the state. Um, and then the Vietnam War, the, the Cambodian genocide, which was the period in the 1970s when Pol Pot and the Khmer Rouge took power in Cambodia uh, and uh, enacted a series of radical uh, experiments really of how people might relate to the natural world. Uh, and those were experiments that were actually begun first with the collectivization of agriculture up in the highlands. Uh, so I have a chapter about that as well. And then a uh, discussion of the way that people put their lives back together in the aftermath of the, um, of the 
uh, wars of the mid-century and of this period of turmoil in the uh, mid-1970s. Um, the idea of a conjuncture, so I want to touch a little bit on just a couple of the key concepts that the book is arranged around. One of them is this idea of the historical conjuncture. This is a concept from, well, that I took from recent work by scholars like Tanya Lee and uh, Nancy Peluso. And I'm, for, the, for some of you, this may be, these may be people who uh, aren't part of your, uh, your disciplinary training. Um, these are anthropologists and geographers working in Southeast Asia. Um, but you go back a little bit further and you find that they are also drawing on common theoretical interventions that we're all looking at. So this idea of um, conjuncture would have much in common with writers following in the trail of uh, Stuart Hall, for instance, um, if you think of the, um, the book Policing the Crisis uh, that he wrote, it's one of the places where he uses this concept of conjuncture rather well to illustrate uh, a certain, uh, I don't know, um, uh, a, a moral panic that takes place essentially, but uh, one that is created through a series of political and economic realities. Uh, the work of Doreen Massey also um, follows on that. So this, these are places where we'll have overlap in terms of um, the intellectual traditions that we're drawing on. Um, as an environmental anthropologist, for me, uh, what was interesting about the conjunction, perhaps something that, that would be of interest to those in the environmental humanities is to think how uh, this moment in time, this, this moment that expresses a series of political forces, economic and cultural forces, uh, how it might come to be expressed itself in the landscape. That was where I went looking for it, um, in the human relationship to the environment. Um, so that environments, uh, which I'm sure uh, many of you will have observed or, or have read about uh, other scholars working on this concept, that environments themselves express human relationships. They, they contain or they're marked by the ways that humans interact with the natural world. And as an, an environmental anthropologist, I was really interested to study uh, the landscape as a, a way of getting to what, what was it about a specific moment? What did the land, if you could look at what the landscape looked like in that moment and how people were interacting with the landscape uh, that would be a way of trying to understand uh, the coming together of various kinds of forces in people's lives, structuring the way that they that they organize themselves as a society, that they made a, li a living from the land, uh, these kinds of things. Um, so, um, sorry, I'm just trying to make sure that I don't spend too much time talking to you guys right now at the beginning of our talk. Um, but I, I thought I would just, this concept of the landscape is one of the things that is sort of a, a contribution, I think, of the book. Um, the idea is that landscapes have several functions. They are, uh, I, I was going to try to read just a second, a couple of, you know, passages, just because I think you could get a sense for uh, how the how the book is put together and the sort of nature of it as a text. Um, so this is just a little bit that I had about landscapes in here that might help you to understand why I think the landscape is an interesting um, uh, focus for environmental anthropologists and those in the environmental humanities. I, I 
my my understanding of it is that a landscape is both observed and lived in. It consists of the surroundings that we experience as our world. Uh, the term refers to the world around us, the world as we perceive it, and it also implies a form of habitation. And as a concept, landscape refers to a set of biophysical phenomena and the relationships among them, which is to say an environment or an ecology. Even urban landscapes are ecological formations, although the enduring nature-culture divide that structures much thinking in the social sciences often prevents us from seeing them that way. Uh, for anthropologists and geographers, the concept of landscape is useful because it brings together three important fields of, of inquiry, ecology, representation, and materiality. Landscapes as environment point to the interrelationships among living things and suggest the importance of ecological function to the production and sustenance of life on earth. As representational forms, landscapes derive analytical purchase from the interpretation of the meanings that they are made to hold. And finally, an analyzed from the perspective of their material properties, landscapes alert us to the ways that the material world conditions the production of human and non-human lives and structures the experience of social life. Here there is space to explore how landscapes and their elements act as agents within reconfigured accounts of the social. Um, so in that last notion of the materiality of landscapes, um, I'm quite intentionally taking on board some of the uh, new feminist materialisms and approaches to trying to think through how the landscape itself serves as an actor within some of these historical moments that it's caught up in. Uh, the, um, seeing, seeing a landscape changing in this way from moment to moment uh, actually is a useful uh, critical intervention, I believe, because um, if you think about, say, the notion of resilience uh, that's very prominent in discussions of environmental, social relations uh, today, um, there's a tendency with Highland people in uh, Northeast Cambodia and throughout uh, the region where I work to think about their practice of Swidden agriculture, which is a, a kind of an extensive agricultural practice that involves burning the forest and then planting it and allowing it to regenerate uh, as a resilient um, practice or set of resilient practices. Uh, and it's seen in this way, under this concept of resilience, it almost seems as if people have been doing the same thing the way that they have been taught by their uh, uh, elders to do for generations, right? And that, that is often the case. You see the, tr the transmission of knowledge about the environment, about, about the natural world passed down sets of practices um, devised a uh, long time ago still being very meaningful today. But what's so interesting is that at any given moment in the, the hills of Cambodia look very different. So that even though people are doing a certain kind of agriculture, you have the appearance of new market crops coming into play. Uh, you have land loss, you have various kinds of movements across the landscape. Um, and it shows that these are actually dynamic systems that are changing quite a bit as opposed to uh, a kind of eternal ongoing set of practices that, uh, that, that reflect some sort of cultural continuity as well, right? Which is one of the ways that they're often described. Um, and it's important because, uh, and I think this is a really important point to make, um, it's not my, me trying to narrate the past of this people through the landscape is not 
an externally imposed project, right? This is actually how the Dari people of Cambodia and Vietnam and many of their, the other highland groups that live in this area, they, they do this themselves. They use the landscape to talk about the past. They talk about the meanings that the landscape continues to hold for them. And oftentimes when they're telling a history, a mythical history, a history of ancestors, um, and oftentimes from my perspective, listening to these histories of people in, endowed with what we would call magical powers of some sort, you know, they continue right up through to a decade ago or, or less. So it's not, uh, these aren't, they don't, they don't read, these histories don't register as myth to, to the dry people that I spoke with. Um, when they're narrating these histories, they're often looking off to a distant hill that you can see from the village and saying, you know, it happened here. Uh, the, these are the four, you know, these are the, um, the yang, these are these powerful uh, spirit forces that live up in this particular hill who did this action at this time. So it's not just my desire to understand the environment through the, from the perspective of the Jirai that, that sort of dictated this approach in the book, but rather um, one that is very much of a piece with the ways that the Jirai themselves narrate their own history. Um, I'll just say one more, thing about that, um, which is that these histories that live on from the past, they often live on in the form of a certain ecological formation. There's a swamp with a name that was created through some event that happened in the past, and people can mark the past through uh, going to that place and saying, look, this is where so-and-so did this thing, and this is why it looks this way. But what's so interesting about it is that um, again, taking into consideration the ways that uh, ecologies themselves are uh, made up of the actions of very many different kinds of actors. Um, these histories don't stay in the landscape as set pieces for decades and decades. They actually start to decay. Uh, they're overtaken by brush new uh, ecological formations come up in places where old ones once stood and you see the remnants of these things living on in the present. And I, uh, this notion of the idea that the history um, that lives in the landscape is really only ever partial was something that I thought was really useful for, um, for thinking through how the how Jirai people and how all of us experience the past through uh, through the landscape. Um, let me read to you just a very brief little section here so that gives you a, a sense for um, that piece of the puzzle. Uh, so one of the one of the points I make is that uh, Eric Hobsbawm used to call the kinds of histories that I have written about in this book histories from below. And uh, I actually had said, you know, this is not appropriate in the case because the people I'm working with are Highlanders and uh, better to call them histories from the hills instead. Uh, and I wrote that, uh, like the landscape itself though, histories from the hills are only ever partial. To understand the past through its remnants in the present requires not only coming to grips with the fractured nature of the past, but also celebrating the virtues of this incompleteness. Where the past lives on in the present, it does so only in pieces. Previous ecologies are overgrown and the forces of obliteration and oblivion leave behind only fragments from which present understandings are constructed. Multiple forms of disturbance are at play here, not only the ecological disturbance that, that shapes succession and species composition, 
in the forests of the Northeast Hills, but catastrophic disturbances, social and material in their nature, that uprooted people and moved them around on the land, displacing them relationally from each other and from their environment. Processes of disturbance shape the remains of the past, which lives on now in fractured form. This is why uh, the book's title is uh, Disturbed Forms for Fragmented Memories, because of these social and environmental processes of disturbance that actually leave only fragments behind that are the fragments upon which Jirai narrators uh, build stories about the past. Excuse me one second. Um, I, uh, I think rather than, I, I was, I was ambitious about what I'd accomplish in my in 15 minutes of introducing the, the book. Um, let me give you just a sense for the kinds of things that are in the book. And, and rather than reading a, an ex extended excerpt, I'll uh, just try to answer your questions and bring out some of the character of the book through that uh, interaction. Um, so the book starts with this memory of, um, uh, well, it, there's a couple of introductory chapters that talk about what does the village look like and what kinds of people are in the village and what is, you know, let, it allows them to express their own understandings of their life in ways that I'm certainly unable to. So, um, but it moves on to try to begin to try to talk about the pre-colonial moment, which was a moment in which uh, the Jirai were both victims of and participants in uh, certain forms of, um, it's what the anthropologist called, uh, George Konumianas called uh, extreme forms of dependence. So in the pre-colonial moment, uh, social relations in Highland Cambodia and throughout Southeast Asia were based on various kinds of indenture and servitude. And the Jirai were involved in various kinds of inter-village raiding. Uh, there were, um, it's difficult to bring the term slave into the discussion. That's the term that's always used in the French literature, but it's, uh, it's one that is very confusing because of the ways that it's, it's uh, referenced in sort of the North American tradition. And uh, so, the, but, but it is some form of um, various forms of unfreedom um, were how society was essentially uh, sewn together. And so uh, the, one of the chapters discusses the Jirai understanding of this. Uh, and again, this concept of the frontier. Um, there's a chapter that really focuses on rubber as an actor on the landscape because the colonial or the post-colonial government of Norodom Sihanouk uh, was very interested in using rubber to organize the landscape. It has a a wonderful aesthetic. It's this aesthetic of order and of an engineered landscape and states are always sort of going to rubber for um, probably more for its, um, almost more for its perceived effects of organizational purity, right? I mean, you, you have these rows of trees that they create an optical illusion. Um, they're very impressive uh, and that transformation of the landscape that intentional transformation of the landscape into some kind of an otherworldly uh, grid is one of these things that that looks like a state-making behavior. So uh, we, I look at um, the ways that uh, state efforts to impose rubber plantation uh, as a form in the highlands in this sort of mid 20th century moment um, were uh, resisted by highland people quite uh, vociferously and with armed conflict and essentially forced highlanders into the arms of the communists. Um, the next chapter takes on their experience of being 
associated with communist revolution of become of getting swept up in the Khmer Rouge uh, revolution and then quickly realizing the um, lack of freedom that was involved in this massive collectivization uh, process, uh, which was based on a number of very faulty understandings of how people could be encouraged to produce rice in hills. And it's uh, one of these state making projects that uh, lowland states have been trying to impose on the highlands for a long time, which is to get them to do rice farming, just like people down in the uh, lowlands of Cambodia, where you have inundated rice field, uh, right, pond field rice agriculture. Uh, so after the Khmer Rouge period, there's this period in which many, many strains of rice, many, much of the agro, agro biodiversity that would have been character, that was characteristic of the highland landscape in the in the pre-Khmer uh, Rouge moment, it had been wiped out by the Khmer Rouge project. And I talk about um, the stories that people tell about going and finding old seed varieties and bringing them back into the hills. And the idea in, in this, and this is really where this project started for me, so it's where I'll, I'll try to end up right now. Um, you know, when I first started working up in this area, it became pretty clear that the sort of uh, farms and gardens of the people there contained all of these different crops that had been brought from all over the place and that they were in a way like uh, each each of those crops each of those varieties in a in a highland farmer's farm was like a historical document you could you could say where did this particular eggplant variety come from and in theory you could trace it back all the way through the journey that had made being handed from person to person to be brought back into the hills uh, after the Khmer Rouge period, or perhaps it has a longer history that extends from before that. Um, so I had this sort of romantic notion that I would just do that. I would actually just start in people's gardens and start asking them questions about the various rice varieties that they had and other kinds of um, varieties of crops. And of course, it immediately became apparent that this was impossible. Like. People are trading varieties so frequently, you know, it's like asking someone, what did you have for lunch on, uh, you know, two Tuesdays ago? Like, you really, people just don't know. But there were some stories that could be uh, sort of resuscitated from. And again, that's that concept of the breakdown of these histories relatively quickly, right? The, we only have partial knowledge of even the plants that we've managed to put into our garden. But those plants do tell a story or can be made to tell a story of, the recuperation of uh, highland agriculture. Uh, and I uh, counterpose that story of a kind of from below person to person uh, history of the reintroduction of crops in the highlands to this very capital intensive project of reintroducing rice to the lowlands that was backed by uh, the International uh, Rice Research Institute, the CGIAR uh, institutions. Um, it's all often held up as a model of the ex situ conservation of uh, bio plant um, genetic material, essentially. Uh, and yet you have this incredibly effective process of, ex of in situ sort of conservation where all of these old varieties were dug up by going and visiting relatives and bringing them back and then beginning the process of selecting the most appropriate uh, plants from those varieties to again recreate actually the kinds of identities of the crops that they had before so that now people say oh we've got all of our crops back 
And this has happened completely without any publicity, uh, no capital intensive processes. There were no international scientists involved in that process at all. And it's a kind of an, a marvel of ingenuity um, and one that goes unrecognized as these things often do. So the book tries to give some credit to these kinds of processes as well. Uh, so I hope I've given you at least a little bit of an introduction to what the book is all about. Um, unfortunately, you've just heard me talking. And of course, uh, the most pe interesting people talking in the book are not uh, is not me, but rather the people that I learned so much from in the hills. So um, I guess to get the flavor of it in that way, you're going to have to uh, have to read it yourself. But um, I'm happy to answer some questions about it. And uh, again, just really glad to have been invited to talk to you all. Thank you so much, Jonathan. That was a great introduction um, to this book. And it got me thinking um, when you were talking about the ways in which um, the environment may change and that then there's there's leftovers that are there, like things like names and then how those names are interpreted and how those may urge people to bring about restoration. I was thinking about my own work in um, uh, the beaver case. So beavers had become extinct in Sweden, um, but there was this valley, um, which its name Björnaldalen translates literally as Beaver River Valley. Um, and that people talked about it and said, oh, but, but this name is because there were beavers and, and we should bring beavers back therefore. Um, and so they went about this big project to bring them back. Um, and then I was thinking about how the new volcano in Iceland um, that's erupting, right? So it's in Galdingadalir. So it's in a valley. I mean, its name has the word valley in it, but now it's actually a mountain or it's, <laughs> it's there. It's not a valley anymore, right? So how you might need to ah, change the geography, you know, your own understanding of, of the geography as the land changes and names. So I was wondering if you had some examples about this kind of names and, and the way that naming of a landscape um, it is kind of in flux or, or structures the way people uh, act and behave. You know, yes. And, uh, and I think that's a lovely point. It's one that um, I actually got kind of, you know, you know how when you're writing a book like this, you just go down all these rabbit holes, right, where you just get, so it turns out that uh, American uh, geography journals back in the 1920s used to always have uh, articles where they would talk about the corruption of place names, which I thought was lovely, this notion of corruption, right? These place names break down over time and, and the geographers were so interested to put the pieces back together and not allow it to break down, right? And it's kind of illustrative of this point, which is this point of this notion that these things are constantly um, breaking down. And one of the things I think is interesting about the, the question you raised, Ali, is that, um, that that process of corruption, of, of decomposition of these names sometimes, or just the idea that the names themselves are often multiple, right? They can reference many different histories um, so that it leaves open to interpretation, like a place that might be called Beaver River Pond might also have different names uh, or associated with it or that would, would have been able to have been pulled up if it wasn't beavers that were being reintroduced, but say some sort of crow, I don't know, right? There may be some sort of crow outcropping in the Beaver River Pond that would have been a, a point of reference, right? So that there's a multiple uh, 
sort of hooks that, that you could hang the past on in these places. And this was actually the case in, um, so one of the things that I did as a part of my project in, in the Highlands was to go with, I have a, of course, so I was working with this brilliant uh, young guy who uh, would fulfill, I suppose, what you think of as the research assistant or something like that, right? But really he was my guide to much of what I learned. He was introducing me to people. He was taking me around the countryside and showing me things. Um, now, of course, he's gone into politics and, you know, um, have, um, I mean, it's fascinating. He's, he's just doing so incredibly well uh, financially right now that he has no time for, to go around on motorcycles with me and check out old locations in the countryside. Uh, but we did spend a lot of time riding around looking at the old. So, so what happened here during the Khmer Rouge period is that the Khmer Rouge uh, communist soldiers, these revolutionaries, moved everybody down from the hills to the river valleys. This, again, is a classic state making project in Southeast Asia. You want people where you can see them. You don't want them off in the hills where they're not visible to you. So everybody was brought down to the side of the Seisan River and put on these collectives. And the collectives were all sited on a type of landscape that the Jirai call Chraup. And Chraup is basically an inundated wetland that could be used for growing rice. And this was the Khmer Rouge uh, idea. Let's make everybody grow rice in these places. And they were given names uh, in this sort of modernist terminology. They were called Mo Mui, Mo Pi, Mo Bai, Mo Bun, and Mo means it, it's a short name, it's a short term for sort of center of population. Uh, and Mui, it's just number one, number two, number three, number four. And I was, we were talking to some of the older people in the area and saying, how do we find Mo Mui? And they would go into this, right? He'd say, oh, it's over here, you know, take him down past here, take him over here, it's over there. That's where Mo Mui was. But pretty soon you'd find out that they were actually switching the name up with um, somebody else's another history, right? From a different moment, some Jirai leader who had established some sort of um, water buffalo corral in this area. And this would be named after this old chief, essentially, from pre-colonial times so that the layering of these names also became an opening for saying, oh wait, so this is, this, you know, much of the writing about Cambodia is about prelude to a crisis, the crisis of the Khmer Rouge, and then the crisis of memory in the aftermath of the Khmer Rouge, right, people? And so you only have this sort of history of rupture that is organized around the mid 20th century when dry people start talking about other histories inscribed into the landscape, they're, they're uh, disrupting a kind of common narrative of history that would be very common to people in Cambodia as well as outside historians. Um, and I found that to be very important, you know, that they're talking about, look, this landscape doesn't only contain the history of the rupture of the 20th century violence. In fact, we as a people, had these leaders whose names endure in the landscape even beyond and above the tragedy of all of these people dying in the mid 20th century um, in ways that are, remain significant to us. So I think this question of place names is a great question. It's a great way to start to try to think about how are landscapes organized sort of conceptually and in memory for the people who inhabit them. 
So I have a, a methodological question because it's, it's pretty obvious from the way you talk about the book how important history is, uh, right? So we have histories as memories, as legacies. Uh, I mean, you see them in the landscape, in the politics, and people, and so on. Uh, but you are approaching this area as an anthropologist, and I find this intersection between anthropology and history quite interesting. And I guess there's a lot of things one could talk about there. But could you say something about? how you approach this methodologically, since I think that's also an interesting thing in environmental humanities, how we work with different disciplines. Yeah, thanks. Um, so um, I had a hard time with methodology, especially, you know, this was the project that I began as a graduate student. And I don't think I really had a sense for what might be a method, right? I just thought you go somewhere and hang out with people and listen, try to learn what they're, how they talk to each other. So that was the first one, just sort of that classic hanging out was the first thing that I thought of as method. Um, it eventually became the case that I spent a lot of time walking around and visiting places and going with people who were constantly on the move from village to village. They were going to attend various kinds of ceremonies. And you just, uh, it took me three or four, three days uh, from the provincial capital to the village, two or three days when I first started walking, uh, working there. Um, and longer if you were going from like the, the you know, uh, from Phnom Penh. Uh, so there's many, I just spent enormous amounts of time stuck on the side of the road, wading through po uh, mud puddles, um, always with people because, you know, you're sort of always surrounded by people or bumping into people on the road and talking about things with them. And um, it's also the case that uh, Jirai men, especially, uh, and there's a certain sort of gendered dimension to the experience of working with uh, Highland people, um, that made it difficult for me, especially at the beginning, to understand women's perspectives on many of the issues that I was looking at. Um, and I tried to deal with that really forthrightly in the way that I write about the process of doing the research in the book. Although um, uh, at the same time, I should say that uh, Jirai women um, are extremely, they have a, there's a certain, uh, they have a certain, they exert a lot of, of power within a village, even though they don't necessarily appear as powerful figures. So after a while, you get to realize sort of, oh, I need to actually talk to, you know, if you, if you, when many times in the book, when I talk about a farmer, um, for some reason in English, farmer often scans as a, a man uh, in a hat and overalls. And of course, the farmers in, in the villages are largely women doing much of this farming work. And men are spending a lot of time hunting, uh, fishing, traveling from village to village, trading. So there's a lot of these trade items that are, um, the trade in those items has ritual significance that can be very important to the sort of stature of a family. So men actually invest quite a lot of time in this kind of exchange between villages. Um, they're more outwardly directed, I guess you'd say, from the village to other places so that they're always on the road. So it actually became a process of just accompanying people on walks through the forest and they would point stuff out in the forest and you would sort of, there was just something that would happen when you would be, uh, one, a classic example, Jirai villages move around every five to 10 years, 10 years or so. Nowadays, they don't so much because they're sort of 
glued into place by roads and uh, uh, social services and narrow wells and things like that. But back in the day, they moved around quite a bit and even up until the mid 1990s, really. Um, and so you would come across these old village sites and these old village sites would off, often be, you would realize that you were coming up to one because the first thing you would get to would be an abandoned graveyard where these old funerary statues are still sitting there. And uh, one of the um, insights that I came upon in the book was that these, because the dead are buried in these forests next to the village, and then it's forbidden to cut trees that grow up over them, uh, these, uh, the Jirai have an actual sort of ecological term called Glai Tao, which just means a forest of the dead. But you can actually see these things in the landscape. You start walking through it, you're like, oh, wait a minute, the trees are towering overhead. There's statues here that somehow have not, have not rotted or corroded over a hundred years because they're made out of hardwoods and they're being protected from the elements by this massive canopy above them. Um, and it becomes an opening for talking about, well, who lived in this village and how did it happen? So one of the ways that I talked about, um, that I talked about methodology in the book is that, you know, most of the insights that came in the book were things that I stumbled onto because we were walking through the forest and something happened. Um, and so really the, the methodological challenge was sort of, how do you make a methodology out of stumbling upon uh, some sort of insight, but really that that's what it was for me uh, working with um, the people that I was working with and I spent an enormous amount of time and really I think most of the um, insights were gained through the process of learning language of failing to understand things and being instructed of laughing stupidly at the wrong time when someone said something and other people were laughing and then it became very obvious that I was sort of laughing in sympathy with all the other people around simply because I thought it was some, I was supposed to react to something funny, but people would say, that guy has no idea why we're laughing. And then they would tell me why they were laughing and you'd sort of learn from that. Um, and, uh, and then I would just point out that um, for this particular place in the Highlands, uh, there's a lot of ritual activity going on all the time. So there's almost no single day could go by in which people were not celebrating some sort of event with uh, animal sacrifice, drinking homemade rice beer, um, and that these events, uh, they often thought it was uh, entertaining for them to have me sitting there <laughs> for whatever reason and try to give me as many drinks as possible. And you know, this actually becomes a methodology itself of just trying to keep up with people who are, are far more practiced at uh, sort of being productive through the midst of all of these kinds of things than uh, than I was. I, I've been out of practice. Hope that helps answer that question a little. Yeah, thanks. It's also always good to get a reminder, you know, that hanging out is actually a valid research method. And I think also why in history and anthropology is compatible because, I mean, what is the essence of the historical method, but like hanging around the documents, really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, and Micah actually had a question, I had been thinking it too, which was, um, you know, how did you end up coming to this particular topic? Um, you know, I guess I, going off to the Cambodian highlands, I mean, how does one end up doing that as a yeah. research project? Um, 
I think that it's interesting. It, it speaks to the ways that academic disciplines are not as remote from the, some of the uh, political and economic processes that they tend to try to critique. Uh, I recall when I was in graduate school, I'd been working in South America for a long time. I actually spent uh, my early career, I, was, I, I lived and worked in Paraguay for, for almost a decade. Um, and I had decided that I, I, I was at um, Yale, there's all of these Southeast Asianists there, and I just got fascinated by it. And I thought either I do my dissertation on South America and that's it, I'm a South American, I'm a Latin Americanist forever, or now's the time, switch, you know, go do something else. Maybe I would learn something. The thing that I was initially interested in was this concept of indigeneity as a social category, as a form of identity that could bind people together. And of course, it means so many different things in these different contexts, especially between settler colonial societies in the Americas and places in Asia. So I thought that I thought I was interested in sort of understanding indigeneity and indigenous understandings of the world in a cross-cultural perspective in some way. Um, but I just was spent too much time hanging out with people and they weren't interested in that, the people I was hanging out with. So it didn't work out that that was my project. But um, at the time that I was in grad school, which started in the late nineties, there was a narrative still out there that Cambodia was quote unquote opening up, right? Um, the government of Cambodia was more interested in foreign aid from Western countries than say Vietnam, which uh, constantly retained, right? The, the power of the communist party in Vietnam, there was no interest in having, um, you know, and I, I had actually spoken with a number of people who had worked in Vietnam and had very difficult uh, situations where they felt that their presence in villages was exposing people to risk. Um, it wasn't a, the kind of place that you could actually work. So, but it was interesting that this this narrative of Cambodia opening up, right? It's similar to what many of you may have seen. This sort of similar narrative applied to Myanmar in the in the days prior to the most recent uh, upheavals and in Myanmar and the uh, taking of power of the, the coup. Um, but prior to that, of course, the narrative there was Myanmar's opening up, right? Opening up to democracy, opening up to investment. And so we as academics get sucked into these same sort of um, global flows of information and investment and finance and all of the, you know, right? All of these same things. And really um, many people I talked to when I said I was interested to work in, in Southeast Asia said, well, Cambodia would be a great place. No one's really been able to do field research there, um, you know, even though the Khmer Rouge were in power from 1975 to 79, civil war uh, extended for 15 or 20 years after that, there really hadn't been a lot of research done. And there were, um, you know, the questions that one, the questions of what does genocide, you know, about the Cambodian genocide and how it had affected life there, uh, were pressing questions that really hadn't been uh, addressed. So those were questions that drew me. Um, and uh, and I also, you know, and it was also one of these circumstances, there was a graduate student coming to um, my program who was a Cambodian who'd been trained in Kiev, of course, you know, because uh, the, the Cambodians sent 
Uh, the Russians were were very involved in Cambodia at, for, at a certain moment, brought everybody to Kiev to train them as engineers. And so, you know, this guy was coming to study the environment. He'd been, he spoke English and he invited me to come uh, look at some of the work that his, or he was working with uh, World Wildlife Fund at the time. So they invited me to come look at some of the work that they were doing. And, you know, that was just a happen, kind of a, an email that turned into a meeting that turned into a visit that turned into uh, 20 years of, of work. Yeah, an email that turns into a visit that turns into 20 years of work. That's a great way to put it um, with a lot of academic work, really. Um, I was, I, when, when you were talking um, in your introduction and you were talking about landscape um, and the way you look at the landscape in these different um, ways, I got to thinking about one of the foundational people within environmental history, Don Worcester, and his discussion of the way we write environmental history in three ways. And I mean, you can talk about whether or not they're really <clears throat> separate ways. I mean, most of the time they're not, but one was, the first is the material, right? The physical, the actual um, change in the land, if you will. Um, and the second is as a production. So how you produce on the land, which your stories then have to do with agriculture and agricultural productional shifts. And the third is as the, the way we think about the environment. So it's the level of, of the history of idea um, and the history of, of the way we envision uh, the environment and the stories we tell about it. Um, and, and so I saw a lot of similarities there in the way you were talking uh, about landscape in, in these three levels. So I, I was wondering if you could say more about the way that the Jirai do this at the ideological level, at the, at the concept level, the idea. So how do they envision the, this forest, right? Um, and the landscapes in which they inhabit and um, what role does it have culturally? You know, are there, you mentioned the, the cemeteries, which was really interesting, the spiritual aspect. Um, so I'm thinking along those lines. Sure. Um, great question. It, it's so funny, you know, you, when you put together one of these schematics that you organize, you're thinking around, then then you show up at these talks and people are like, you know, uh, Lefebvre actually said, Lance, you know, this thing too. And you're like, oh gosh, of course, I've, I sublimated Lefebvre and forgot all about it and then reinvented it myself. And there you have it. Um, so, um, and I, of course, I was so influenced by uh, Cronin's changes in the land, you know, when I first started reading environmental history, I, it just seemed so brilliant to me. So, um, you know, I'm sure that, I'm sure this is all just a, an effort to, uh, to try to emulate uh, Bill Cronin too. Um, the Jirai understanding of the landscape at this sort of um, conceptual level or their conceptualization of the landscape is, you know, I, I want to say spiritual, but I, want, I also want to warn that the, the Jirai would not see it this way because there's no sense for them that things that are spiritual that, uh, that have to do with the dead or the spirits, which are the Tao and Yang, are not real, right? So from a Western perspective, we tend to, uh, or at least um, 
we've inherited a, a tradition in which we would say there's a sort of spiritual world and a material world and they are different. Uh, and for the Jirai, that, that's not really the case, but I would say that they believe that um, there are a series of extremely powerful uh, forces, animate forces um, possessed of identity, of personhood that are constantly messing around with uh, lowly humans, um, or that is to say humans who are essentially being um, um, often manipulated by them, who should live in fear of them, uh, whose life force, human life force can often be negatively affected by the actions of these spiritual actors uh, so that if you don't spend a lot of time placating them through various kinds of, I mean, and this again, placating, this is, this is a French way of thinking about, about sacrifice, right? But, um, but in any case, the obligation of involving these powerful actors in your world, but at the same time, not getting too close to them is how many of the activities that the Jirai perform on the landscape you know, that's the kind of conceptual background through which you could justify um, how you take on some of these things. Uh, just to give one example, um, the sighting of a, of a new Swidden field uh, would never be done simply on the basis of the um, existing flora, fauna, perceived drainage capabilities. Now, be very clear, like when Jirai um, farmers are sitting around thinking, we're going to go over to this place that we haven't been for quite a while and we're gonna do some farming over there uh, because the trees are the perfect size and you can just tell that when you cut them down and burn them, you know, the it's gonna be red soils underneath them and those are the best for farming and it'll be very productive. Um, but when it actually comes down to it, um, this involves going to bed at night, dreaming, trying to understand if your dream has uh, water flowing in it, that's good. If it has water stoppage, which is a frequent thing that happens in a dream, you wouldn't dare to go and uh, farm in that area. Uh, then you set out to, you do a couple of experimental kind of, um, you go and have a drinking session up there basically and, and scatter the remains of the, the jar of rice beer uh, on the ground in the morning, in the evening as you leave, and then you come back the next day and see if it's been disturbed or not. And there's various kinds of augury that are done to listen to the birds on either side of you on your way out there. Um, all of these things contribute to whether or not you would farm in that area. And you know this logic of agricultural productivity um, of what the landscape is capable of, of, of power, it's essentially a, a discussion of, of power in the land, um, comes back again when someone's talking about so-and-so had a great year farming. The realization is, you know, they did not have a good year farming because they uh, worked really hard. They had more children than anyone else and were able to invest more labor in the land. No, you know, it has to do with, they performed all the sacrifices. Uh, they managed to make the Yang happy with them. There's a good spirit who lives there who's decided that they're not gonna, you know, they'll allow them to be very productive there. So. Um, this logic sort of extends through many different ways of thinking about um, landscape, um, including, uh, again, uh, these Yang who live in and around the land, um, they live in villages, they mess around with people's lives, 
they imbue people with certain kinds of power that allow them to rise to prominence in society um, so that there's a whole landscape explanation for uh, many historical actors and their successes as historical actors of, of some kind or another. That is, it's so fascinating to hear about, yeah, that the way it's all put together, because you have the, the material aspect of, yes, a particular thing is growing there now and it's going to affect the soil, but the ways in which you interpret that, um, that being there is, is all tied up with your whole worldview, right? And, and how it has come to, um, yeah, how you envision the world affects how you read the material manifestation right. of that. Um, let's see, Gabriella, you have a question. We'll unmute you. Thanks. Um, I've really enjoyed hearing about your work and can't wait to read the book. I'm going to tick back a little bit to something Dahlia asked about earlier, but ask it in a different way. So I was really interested in the um, rediscovery of the plants after the Khmer Rouge and, and bringing, are there stories and are there names attached to the plants that travel back into the highland? And then I'll ask uh, another sort of technical, I've, I've done a lot of anthropology because I work on food. Um, and so I've read a lot about Papua New Guinea and, uh, and sort of gift exchange. Um, and so I'm wondering is sort of some of the, the gift exchange that men do, is that kind of reminiscent to some of the other Pacific Islanders that, that we might know about? Um, and then, you know, this, the, the idea of like the farming system that women often farm in other places too, right? So particularly in Southeast Asia, that it's the men who move and the women who stay, but they stay because they're growing the crops. Um, so I'd just like to, you know, hear your thoughts on that. <clears throat> Absolutely. So um, this is a good question. Uh, this is touches on many things. It's actually, that question goes into many of the different pieces that uh, I've written about in the book. Um, men traditionally have, ex not men, this was something that was fascinating. Whenever I heard about these relations, people have these relations called Jiang relations, which is a, a fictive kinship relation that you establish with someone through a process of exchanging sacrifices with them. And usually it's done to create a, essentially like an in-law or a, um, a kind of person who can act as a host to you if you go and visit a faraway village. And they're always talked about when people were telling me about them, they were telling me about men having these things. So, but I did a survey in the village, who, who, who has Jiang and where are they? And all the women had Jiang as well, you know, and it's sort of a hidden thing that it's like, no, actually this is not just a, a male. It's, it's often narrated as a male form of fictive kinship of alliance, essentially, that you would have an ally in another village who would share with you. But these allies are also sources for uh, crops varieties. So you would go and visit your ally and bring your ally news of the village and uh, reminisce and, uh, and then drink together. And you would probably go home with uh, a, a root ball or two in your hand, right, of a, a certain crop that would you didn't have at the village that he says is fantastic and you can be used for this and this purpose. Um, so that there's an element of gift exchange also in there. Although 
and and you mentioned the case of Papua New Guinea, right? This would be the kind of thing that we're a kind of trading or gift exchange that happens around the edges of another one, right? So the classic example of the Kula, right? And I don't know that much about it, but it's always talked about as having all these lateral effects as well, where people essentially wind up going home with a bunch of stuff that weren't Kula trade items, but they were just trade that was being conducted around the edges of these other items. So uh, if men are going, or if people are visiting other villages and engaging in exchanges of sacrifices to uh, continue the relationship of um, this, this alliance relationship, and then they would go home with a bunch of plants, then this one circuit is essentially enabling the flow of uh, plant genetic material and the recuperation of, and the variety names, like you say, actually do have a lot of significance. And one of the chapters in the book actually looks at the remembrance of American invasion of the highlands through the lens of two species. One of them is called airplane weed in Jirai, and the other one's called American thorn, right? And these are invasive species that take over um, disturbed landscapes, just like the uh, air landings, the landing zones that were created by the Americans. And, you know, this um, very good friend of mine talked to me about. Uh, the Americans dropped uh, flowers from the sky, right? And I was like, oh, wow, that's a great image, you know? And she's like, oh no, don't be ridiculous. It, the, the runners of their helicopters picked up Chromalena odorata, one of the world's best known invasive species or, or uh, non-native species or however you want to frame it, right? So uh, I talk a little bit about Jirai conceptions of invasion that's done um, through, metonymically through the concept of plant invasion. All right, thanks for that. Uh, our time is out, so we do need to wrap up now. Um, I'd just like to thank Jonathan Padwiden for taking the time on a late Sunday night in Hawaii to, to call in to talk with us. And also thanks to everyone in the audience who, who showed up. Thank you all so much for having me. And I really enjoyed this opportunity and great questions as well.